Now, a couple things. Get your Bibles out. Open to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Uh, you need your Bible. We're going to look at a million verses this morning in John 8. If you didn't get here with the Bible, grab that hardback one. Open to page 1232. You'll find John chapter 8. Uh, a couple things about our uh, hurricane relief effort. Today will be the last day to for us to accept buckets. The, the remaining buckets will be heading out this week to Florida, and there'll be a team of us heading to uh, Texas. And so if you want to go with us to Texas, uh, we're going to leave Wednesday about noon, and we'll be back Saturday afternoon sometime. So if you want to be a part of that with eight days of hope, just let Pastor Rod know today, because all those arrangements will be uh, made. But if you want to do that, let him know. We... Uh, We'll be transitioning from here forward, just trying to meet the needs as they come about. So I'll keep you abreast of what we're doing. So we are in the third week of this series, this part of John I'm calling Follow. And if you notice, uh, the reason why I chose that as our name and logo for this section of John is because it's Follow, period. Because Jesus is going to really sort of lay down the specifics of fellowship. And John chapter 8, though long and there's some complex uh, conversation going on, and maybe sometimes people read through John 8 and get lost after the first part. They just get lost, but don't, don't do that. It's, it's an extraordinary passage of Scripture. It has lots to uh, teach us today, and so we're gonna we're gonna work through it, and we're gonna see uh, as God's gonna show us some things this morning about what it means to be one of His followers. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we study His Word. Father God, we thank you for Your Word, Lord. We come before it now, humble, recognizing that what's before us is perfect, inspired by You, intended for us. It is our greatest earthly possession. And Lord God, we want to hear from you today. We believe, Lord, that you want to speak to each of us individually and to us corporately. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that he would work among us and we might have ears to hear and hearts to receive for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me just point something very interesting out to you as we begin. Notice that this chapter, though 59 verses in length, which is long for a gospel chapter, 59 verses, notice that it begins with the story of the religious leaders bringing a woman to Jesus who was caught in the act of adultery and they have stones in their hand. Now look at the very last verse of this chapter. It ends in verse 59. The scripture says, Then they, the religious leaders, took up stones to throw at Jesus. And so what happened last week was we looked at how Jesus dealt with this woman caught in adultery and how one by one they dropped their stones. And over the course of the next, uh, you know, several conversations with Jesus, at the end, they pick the stones back up, except for this time, their aim is not upon 
a woman that they're using as a pawn to trap Jesus, but they're on Jesus himself. The other thing I find fascinating about this chapter is that the context of the chapter is the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so the whole context is everyone's gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast that's centered around remembering and rejoicing in freedom. Remember I told you last week that at the exact time on the last day of the feast as the priest made his last sort of round down to fill up his golden pitcher of water and was dumping it out on the altar and Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And now today, what we're going to look at is it's the winding down of this big celebration. It's sort of like the, the day after Christmas, if you will, when, you know, it's taking down the lights and taking down the trees and, uh, you know, cleaning the stockings up off the mantle and so on and so forth, and taking the manger scene out of your front yard and packing it back up until next year. So, so as, the, as the deconstruction of the celebration is sort of taking place and winding down. The sun is beginning to set on the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus says in verse 12, at just the right time. Look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now remember back in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus said that in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Remember that? And so now we're revisiting, and Jesus is putting it all into context. And what he's saying is, he's saying that I'm the light, and... Without me, there's no life. So apart from me, you're dead. And dead people can't see. But alive people can see because they're in the light. Now let's think about some things just quickly so we can establish some, some framework or a foundation under this I am the light of the world statement. Jesus says I'm the light of the world. So here's what his statement means at least. Number one, you get your listening guide out. You can fill in your first blanks. At least it means the world has no other light but Him. Now notice, He says, I am the light of the world. Now, He's not only saying that He is the one and only light of the world, but He goes on to say that there's no other choice but darkness. So there's no other light but Him, and there's no other choice but darkness. So He is the light, and if you follow Him, you will not walk in darkness. But if you do not follow Him, then you will walk in darkness. So He's the light of the world, so that there's an opportunity for those who receive Him and follow Him to walk in light. But apart from Him, the only option you have is to walk in darkness. And so though He's the light of the world, the world is not all light because clearly... There's many people, in fact, more people walking in darkness than people are walking in light. But it's a great promise. Whoever follows Him, whoever follows Him will not walk in darkness. So there's a lot hanging on whoever follows Him. What does that look like? 
How does that work? All right, let's read through this first conversation. Verse 13. Then the Pharisees said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. So they're referring back to the law now, saying, Well, you, don't, you're, you, you need at least two people to bear witness of you in order for it to be legal. Jesus answered them and said, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if, you, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Well, Jesus, you're not going to back him into a corner. Then, he said to him, then they said to Jesus, where is your Father? Jesus answers, you know neither me nor my Father. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. All their lives have been devoted to what they believe is following the Father, following God through the, the memorization and the meticulous understanding of, of the law. And Jesus says, you've never known Him. Verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple and no one laid hands on Him for His hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away and you will seek Me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. And he said to them, You are from beneath. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now Jesus tells these religious leaders that they have never known the Father to whom they believe they know better than anybody else. And He says to them that they will die in their sin. I mean, this just progressively gets harder and harder. I mean, just worse and worse as their accusations get more and more below the belt and Jesus gets more and more truthful with them. Uh, verse 25, and then they said to him, well, who are you? That's the million dollar question. And Jesus says to them, just what I've been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world these things which I heard from him. But they did not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And then Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. Now, verse 30 is key. 
As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Now remember, all of the things that John has been teaching us, in particular since chapter 2, as he prepared us to move through 3 and his conversation with Nicodemus and all of his interaction with the religious leaders... Now he's speaking, he's explaining to them who he is. He's explaining to them that he's the light of the world and what what this looks like, what this is made up of. And the Bible says as he spoke, spoke these words that many people believed in him. It had to be this moment of deja vu all over again. It seems like over and over we come to this point. Many people believed in him. But notice that Jesus never immediately embraces the adoring crowd around Him. And just like He's done in the past, and just like He will continue to do, He doesn't give Himself to the crowd who is believing in Him, who is moved by the things that He does. Those people who claim to follow Jesus, they've yet to understand that He's looking for disciples, not decisions. And though here, many people have clearly made a decision that they believe in Him, there's still some things undone, and Jesus wants to set that straight. You know, before He's willing to receive someone into His inner circle, He wants them, just like He wants us, obviously, which is why we're having this conversation. He wants us to know that life in Him, life under an open heaven, comes with requirements. It's more than just saying, well, I believe in Him. He wants wants us all to know that we're, we're called to something. We're called to acknowledge our sin. We're called to genuine repentance we're called to something so here's my question what constitutes genuine discipleship what separates if you have a group of people that say they believe what separates from that group the people who are called to acknowledge their sin and become disciples. What separates those people from the wannabes? From those who are caught up in the uh, emotion? Who, uh, who amongst those who believe are the genuine believers? The real disciples? And this is what I really want you to stew on for a second. Is Jesus, in requiring that there are conditions to discipleship, is Jesus doing the same thing that the religious leaders are guilty of by adding things on to something, by making it more difficult than it ought to be? You see, because we've been, or... I've been very critical of the religious leaders in the Gospel of John. 
And how they were piling things on to people that were unbiblical and making it more difficult for them and actually becoming a stumbling block to people coming to Christ. And then you get to Christ and you get to His response to people who believe and then you think, well, now wait a minute, is He doing the same? Why doesn't He just receive everyone who believes? Is He creating more religion? See, so here's where clarity comes in. Because God's not going to leave us hanging in the tension. To those that are expressing interest and possible commitment to fellowship, Jesus will now give us all clarity. So by the end of this conversation, we'll all know exactly what Jesus requires. Look at verse 31. Now he's going to explain it to us. Jesus said to those, the Jews who believed him, if you abide in my... you get getting the, 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 the... How many weeks in a row are we on? If you abide in my... Not in my miracles. Not in... Uh, The things that you see me do, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Clarity, statement number one. So now what we know is about to follow is some understanding about discipleship. Clearly Jesus is is starting out by, by letting us know that a true disciple is a person who abides or continues in his word. Now notice Jesus says, if you abide... Now, he's talking to people where he's saying, now, if you abide, because he knows that in this group, it's not a foregone conclusion. In fact, a lot of them are not going to abide. So he's saying, if you do, because he's not certain that you will, if you do, then and only then will you be my disciples. Now, now what does this mean? Why is abiding in his word the mark of true discipleship. The word abide. It means to remain in one place. Meno. It means to, to make oneself at home. It's, it's as Dallas Willard always says, a long obedience in the same direction. Abiding. Abiding. So those who abide will continue. Will continue what? Will continue if it requires a disciplined schedule of reading. You can't abide in this word if you don't read it, if you don't ingest it, if you don't take it in. You can't abide in his word. If you're not spending time in His Word. My mind echoes with all of the the statements, the conversations that have been uh, rarely, but sometimes, spoken directly to me. Most of the time, overheard in my close proximity where I hear people, especially since we've... uh, been doing D groups 
where you have a, a disciplined schedule of reading and people say, uh, well, that's just not for me. Consider the ramifications of that statement. Reading the Bible every day is just not for me. Okay. Sir, ma'am, I would love to meet with you after service and I would love for you to explain to me how you are going to abide in something that you don't spend time in. It's impossible. You're going to abide in His Word if you're a disciple, even if it may not seem at present to live up to its promises. As soon as you start reading it on a consistent basis, it's not going to take you long to realize that, wait a minute, now, this is different than anything else I've ever read. This living Word is interacting with my life in such a way, and it, it leaves me with questions. It causes me to ponder things. It, it creates in us this necessity to develop patience because God's timing's not our timing. And so the Word many times says things that make us think, well, now, wait a minute. Is this, is this going to work out? Is this the way it says it's going to be? When you abide, you continue on even if it goes contrary to how you would naturally do things. Maybe one of the very first experiences you're going to have by abiding in the Word is, what? Wait a minute. So you want me to, 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 to handle my bitterness this way? You want me to... You want me to, to Handle my resources this way? You want me to manage my relationships this way? You want me to... Which are going to be very, very different than how you would naturally do things. Those who abide continue on even if it doesn't line up with our values. My goodness, if we were abiding in the Word and our values and priorities remained intact, then I think we could all agree we'd be wasting our time wouldn't we well sure we would because we wouldn't need his word because apparently we've got this thing no it's going to rattle up all your values it's going to shake up all your priorities when you abide you continue on even if it doesn't make sense it just flat out doesn't make sense it's not that it's not naturally what you would do it's not that you you don't see how this could become a reality it's that it just doesn't make sense at all. Doesn't make sense. To obey it would mean you would have to have a conversation or do things or manage your life in such a way to where you cannot even comprehend a possible scenario where it would work out for your benefit. You been there? To abide in His Word is to continue on even if it demands ultimate authority over our life decisions. One of the things that couples say when I perform their wedding ceremony is, they say to each other that they are adopting the Scripture as the blueprint 
for their lives. That most of the things in life that you have an opportunity to disagree about or to argue about or to get in some, you know, bind over or something like that can simply be solved when a husband and wife just sit down at the table, open up their Bible and say, well, look, let's stop worrying about what you think and let's stop worrying about what I think and let's just ask God what He thinks. Let's just do what He says. And then finally, those who abide continue on even if it costs you your life. Even if it costs you your life. Now, in a physical sense, we're all here this morning, meaning that it hasn't cost us our life. But in a spiritual sense, Jesus said, whosoever wants to gain his life must lose it. Lose it. And so this abiding in the Word is what Jesus calls us to if we're going to be His disciples. But we know if we study Scripture, in particular in a few months when we get to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John, we'll have a conversation of uh, this, but on the other side as well. that It's us abiding in the Word. And then it's the Word abiding in us. Now, you think about the amazing places in Scripture where uh, the Bible talks about the Word abiding in us. I love in Jeremiah chapter 20 where the, the prophet is, the weeping prophet, it seems like everything God calls him to do blows up in his face. I mean, for him, obedience is just, a, uh, just agony. And he says in Jeremiah 20, verse 9, Then I said, I will not make mention of him. He is so frustrated. Nor speak any more of his name. All right, Jeremiah, you give that a whirl. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. I could not. See, that's how I feel when I'm away from you for a week or two, and then I haven't been able to preach to you. Then I get back, I feel like a volcano about to erupt. i got all these things inside of me that have to get out. Remember, even this gospel writer John had that same experience in the book of Revelation in chapter 10, where, he, uh, where the angel came to him and, said, here, eat this, and he ate the word, and he said it was sweet like honey. And you see, that, that's what happens. The word, when, it, when, it, when we start abiding in the word, it starts working on us in all these different areas of our lives, and, and it's, it's, it's got a lot of nuances. You know, at first, the word is wooing you to it. You know, I remember when I first started reading the Bible, you know, I was, I was so excited, but I was so confused. I was reading the Bible as if I was, you know, I, I approached it at first as if I was reading a self-help manual. Like I was going to get all this, you know, information that was going to help me. And then, it, you know, so it woos you at first, but then it kind of reprimands you. It, it's like it's, it's bringing you in and it hugs you and... Then about the time you, you, know, you, you let go of that hug, it backhands you. It, it, uh, 
it establishes you and, and it, it gives us peace and, and confidence, but then it, it prunes us. And we, we feel like we're, get, we're, we're on shaky ground when it's pruning us. We don't understand it. And, and the thing about the Word, when you abide in the Word, it, it penetrates and lays claim to every area of your life. You, you, nowhere escapes it. So you only have two choices. You either keep abiding or you stop reading. Because it's going to meddle everywhere that you need meddling. It's going to do that when you abide in it. Here's a good way to understand it. When the Word abides in us, the Word must come as an owner, not a renter. You see, when, when you start reading the Scripture on a consistent basis... You know, maybe you've been around church for a while and you've tried this before. And so you start reading scripture and you already have this idea. Well, I've tried this before and it didn't work. And so I'm going to try this again. And, and so you've got this idea that the word is like a renter, you know, and it's going to come. It's going to, you know, and you just you're just waiting to see how long this lease is going to last. But that's not how it works. Once you start abiding in the word, it comes as an owner. And so when you, when you start to, to, to push away from it, you may be driving down the road, you may be laying in your bed at night, you may be sitting at your desk at work, it doesn't matter. And all of a sudden you feel this knocking on your soul. Hey, something's wrong. The owner, the owner is declaring to you and you... Realize you, you've got to pick it up. You've got to get in it. You need nourishment. You can't make it without it. Because he, he owns the house. He has access to every room, every corner, and every closet. You can't hide anything from the Word. So, what is this abiding work that is, that's accomplished by the Word in us that authenticates us to Jesus, that makes us His disciples indeed. Well, in a, in a big picture sense, when you abide in the Word, what happens is you're drawn into closeness with God. And you begin to understand the character and nature of God in a in a more profound way, really, in the only true way you can. Because there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of time hanging around a lot of Christians, and so they, they know a lot of Christianese. They know a lot of, you know, they know a lot of slogans. And they, they, they might be able to memorize a verse here, a verse there, you know. But, but they don't really know the character and nature of God. You, when you abide in the Word, you get close to God, and then you know. And so you begin to, just like, just like in human relationships that get very close, you get close to God in such a way that you know how He feels about things. You already know. You already know where He stands on different questions. 
You have this sense within you of what He wants you to do and, and not do. And so the, what I want you to see this morning is, is both sides of this abiding. If, if everything I've said so far is true, which it is, then it would explain why so many people spend so much time trying to sand all the rough edges off the Word. You know, trying to make it so it doesn't give us splinters. You know, if you just flip the Bible open and just read random passages all over the place, then what will happen is, or, or, you know, just devote yourself to a devotion rather than to Scripture, then what happens is you... Let me just, let me just let you in on a little secret about most devotions. I have a personal rule when it comes to devotions. I, I wouldn't spend five minutes in a devotion that was written by anybody who's not dead, first of all. That's just my own personal preference. I wouldn't give you two cents for most of the devotions you can go to Lifeway and buy right now. But second of all, if I'm going to write a devotion book and I'm going to sell it for mass consumption, then no matter how initially good my intentions are, ultimately I want people to buy it, right? So what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to write a book filled with devotions where every time you read it, you get a splinter. Because no one's going to want it. Right? So rather than, you know, get some polished, sanded down version, why not just read the original? And then here's the thing. There's going to be days where you spend the rest of the day trying to get the splinter out. But it just gives you more time to think about it. And uh, to know you, that you, you needed that. That it's good for you. You see, the, the Word is not going to... When you rightly abide in it, th this is the, the, the thing. It's, it's not going to configure or conform to suit your personal theology or ethics. So you can't abide and not change. So is it worth it? I mean, let's, let's just don't assume that everybody sitting in here is saying, well, okay, yeah, no. I mean, what percentage of people sitting in this room right now are actually abiding in the Word? So maybe the, a, a fair question is, is it worth it? Maybe for you, you're sitting there just thinking to yourself, well, I'm just not sure it's worth it. Or maybe you've never actually said that, but you're thinking, maybe the reason why I'm not able to do it is because I'm not convinced that it's worth it. Well, good. That's fair. Jesus wants to answer that question. Look at the very next verse. So you're going to abide to be His disciples. Then verse 32 says, And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now the question is, 
for those of us who are wondering if it's worth it. Do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? Is freedom worth it? You see, the author of the word is the God of truth. And so his words, therefore, therefore can only be truth. And so by knowing the truth, which here's a perfect example of a verse that in 99% of all devotions is going to be completely taken out of context. In knowing the truth, you're set free. You're set free from living in obedience to idols. And you're set free to live in the fullness of salvation. See, Jesus said this is why He came to the world, to set captives free, right? But here's the thing about captives. Captives don't always know they're captive. And so there's a lot of people who don't know that, it's, that abiding in God is worth it. Why? Because they don't know that they're captives. And if you don't know that you're a captive, then you think that you're free. So in order to answer the question, is it worth it to abide in the Word, then we got to know, well, then what is freedom? And am I free? Am I really free? Let's talk about freedom for a second. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. As so many people wrongly believe. See, we think of freedom oftentimes... We look up in the sky and we say, look at that. Look at that bird. It's free as a bird. I want to be free as a bird. And that bird's just soaring around in the sky. I just want to be free as a bird. You want to be free as a bird? Is a bird free? Is the bird free? I'm talking about a bird flying in the sky. You say, well, yeah, it's free. No, it's not. Is that bird free? To explore the depths of the ocean? No. That bird can't, can't swim in the depths of the ocean. It's not free to do that. That bird is free only within the confines of the place in which it was created to exist, right? When you see a, a, a video or you're watching TV and it, there's some dolphins playing out in the ocean or a whale out there and there's people out there taking pictures and looking at that whale and they're going, it's so beautiful. Look at that whale just out there in all of its freedom. Is that whale free? Is it free? Is it totally free? Can that whale soar through the skies? No. The whale is only free in the confines of what it was created to exist in. So you see, when we say, well, we want to be as free as a bird, well, that's a good statement if we understand how free a bird actually is. Freedom is living as God created me to. That's what freedom is. See, true freedom is living in the confines, in the boundaries of what you were created to live in. A bird is free in the sky. A whale is free in the ocean. 
But without Christ, we're blinded to our reality. So what happens is, if we don't know where we were created to live, if we don't know what those parameters are, then we can't be free. We could be like a, a baboon in the zoo, in, a, in, in the giant baboon area, swinging around on all the fake trees and jumping across all the rocks and diving into the water and so on and so forth and thinking, look at all this freedom I have in here. And if that's all you ever knew, if you were born into captivity, did, did you see the, the, the story about the, the dolphins in the Caribbean? There's a, a dolphin sanctuary or some kind of a dolphin place. And so when the hurricane came, they were like, uh-oh, what are we going to do? And so the, the people stayed there to protect the dolphins. And of course, what happens is the storm surge comes. And so the water goes way over all the fences. I mean, all the boundaries are submerged by five or six feet at least. And so when they interviewed and they said, what happened to all the dolphins? They said, all the dolphins just stayed in a, in a, in a pod right in the center of the, of the confines of that place. That's all they've ever known. They didn't know what was on the other side of the, the, the fences and the barriers. So they just stayed there. You see, when you're a false disciple, when you're not abiding in Christ, when you don't know His Word the way you ought to, well, then you, you won't even recognize your bondage. Look, look at what happens. So, so he says, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now, now look at what the religious leaders say. I mean, they're rocket scientists, so you can learn from them. Let's look at this, verse 33. So they answer him, well, we're Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Uh, what? Wait a minute. Now, what is the context of the Feast of Tabernacles? Correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't we all just here and didn't we just finish an eight-day celebration that reenacted and celebrated how God led the people by Moses out of, what's the word? Oh, yeah. Now, didn't we just spend eight days celebrating that? Oh, Mr. Jewish religious leader, but you've never been in bondage? Hmm. What about the Assyrian captivity of 722 B.C.? You know, how could you forget? Remember when they led your people out with meat hooks in their cheeks? You know, you don't forget those kind of things, do you? You can't just let that slip your mind. What about the Babylonian captivity? Huh? What about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? What about them? Were they living in freedom? Oh, and one final thought. Just going to toss this out there, Sir Sanhedrin. 
Uh, isn't Rome in charge of you right now? Like right now. This very moment that you're standing there babbling on, you are so blind to your reality that you actually would say to anyone, much less to Jesus, well, we've never been in captivity. You've only known captivity. That's all you've ever known is captivity. You just went from one to the other to the other to the other. And you're in captivity right now. They're not in reality. There's people all over the place that are not in reality. They come to church every Sunday. And they think, I want to be free. I want to be free. And I come to church. And I come to church. And I come to church. And I'm not free. And I want to be free. And there's people that don't come to church. And they go, well, I don't need to go to church. I'm not in bondage. I am free. Now, what blocks freedom? What prevents us from being free? What, what do you think Jesus is going to say to a group of people that go, well, now, wait a minute. We've never been in, we've never been in bondage. We're free. What, what, do you think, what do you think he's going to say? Look at verse 34. So he says to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Guess what is the freedom blocker? Sin. Sin is what is at the core of what keeps us from freedom. Verse 35, a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. See? Sin blocks freedom. So what happens is, the word comes along and it begins to work in us. It begins to to reprimand us and rebuke us. It changes our, our values. It changes our priorities. We begin to abide in the Word and things begin to change. We realize our need for true repentance. We realize that you can't follow someone unless you know who you're following. You don't need to know everything about them, but you need to know who they are. You need to be able to pick them out of a crowd, right? I mean, it wouldn't do you any good to attempt to follow. If I looked at you and then I pointed to a crowd of people, I said, now I want you to follow the person in the orange shirt and there's 14 people with orange shirts on in the crowd. You need to be able to, to know the person that you're going to follow so that you can differentiate them from everyone else that you See, or you're going to be unsuccessful in following, wouldn't you agree? Now, when Jesus says, hey, sin is what blocks your freedom. Sin is what creates this bondage. You know, remember, the context of all this is, is talking about abiding in the Word. And I've already told you, the Word, man, it's... It's rough. You're going to get splinters. People don't want splinters. Why, can't, why didn't God just sand it smooth? Is He mean? Is He condemning? No. No. The reason the Word is the way the Word is is because it has to be because... Because of sin. You see, sin not only breaks God's law. 
Sin also breaks the people who do it. And sin also breaks the heart of the God who created the people who do it. And so God's Word is specifically designed to protect us from sin because sin blocks freedom. You say, well, be more specific. Okay. Maybe you're here this morning and you came to church with your spouse. And you have a piece of paper called a marriage certificate. And that piece of paper is proof that you're legally married. And you can, you can walk around legally married. And yet your relationship is the farthest thing from what God intended for it to be. Relationally, you can be hanging on by a thread. But you're legally married. Now, what's the problem? Sin. What sin? Well, I don't know. But sin's the problem. Any man and any woman who abide in God's Word can stay married. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't care. That's what the Word says. See, you just got a splinter. See? You, you say, well... I, you know, I can't get, I can't seem to get things to, to work in my life. Okay, what, what area of your life? Financially, I'm just a disaster all the time. Okay. Are you abiding in God's Word? Are you, are you using your resources the way God calls you to do it? Well, are you? Oh, well, there's another splinter. You see, the Word is there... For us to know that we can be free if we abide in His Word. But sin is there to try to block our freedom. Try to grab hold of some area of your life and try to pull you down and try to make you captive. So look at what Jesus says in verse 36. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, huh, you're free indeed. The huh I added, that's not in the text. Some of you were like, that's not in my Bible. In the original language, it's huh. Uh, so verse 36 is a clarification of verse 32. See, think about this for a minute. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, what, what is that? What truth? I mean, in other words, so is it in the, in, in the intellectual attaining of information that's going to make me free? Is it, in the, is it in the being able to, you know, have command of a bunch of information? Is that going to make me free? Well, no, or else Jesus would be talking to the freest people who ever lived. Now, that's not it. So then, how do we make sure we don't get off track? Well, because if the Son makes you free, you didn't make yourself free. The Son makes you free. In other words, you didn't 
leave here today and say, I'm going to start reading the Bible so that I can make myself free. No, it won't work like that. What Jesus is saying, it's not your understanding. It's you understanding that you can't do it. It's you understanding that in and of yourself, you're never going to be free. You're not going to be free because you can't beat sin. Sin is going to beat you. So, what Jesus is saying is that for Him to make you free, you're surrendering to Him. You're abiding in the Word because you're, going, you're abandoning your ability and saying, I need to know God. I need you to help me understand. I need, to give, I need you to give me wisdom. I'm going to abide in Scripture because, not because my way is not the best way, but because my way is terrible. I need your way. I need your way. And then here's what happens. As you begin to abide in the Word, the chains of bondage start to loosen. Now, now why is that? What do I, because what's loosening the chains? What's loosening the bondage in our lives? As we're abiding in the Word... Because we, our way doesn't work. Our understanding is, is insufficient. We want God's understanding. We want God's wisdom. We're abiding in His Word. The, the chains are loosening because we're beginning to understand things that on our own we could never understand. And there's a thousand of them. You see, we're like the bird flying in the sky that's realizing that's where he's meant to be. Is in the sky. You're, you, you start understanding for the first time. See, this is the difference between you and a bird and you and a whale. You heard me get frustrated with people that go, Oh, whales, they're so, I think they're even smarter than people. Oh, really? So when you see a boat coming behind you with a giant harpoon on the front of it, you just keep on doing this? No, you run. Well, you know, because whales, they built cities under the water. Sure, they, they've done that. They've, no, you, they're not smarter than us. Here's the thing. The difference between you and a whale and you and a bird and you and everything else is you, ma'am, sir, you, you can expand your life into all sorts of different boundaries that you were never intended to live in. You can do all sorts of things, can't you? Now, is that new information? Or are we a group of people that has unilaterally been burned by getting off into things we weren't intended to be in? Right? Right? Yeah. You see, that's what makes us different. We can go off into all sorts of things. So what we need to know is, well, what are we supposed to be in? What are, where are we supposed to be? How is this supposed to work? Well, when you abide in Scripture, guess what? You're going to be set free from all these things. Let me give you some, some examples. You're going to be set free from hoping, striving, or trying to earn God's favor. There's a big one.
there's people all over the place that are trying to earn God's favor. And they don't realize the bondage that that is. You see, when you abide in His Word, one of the first things you're going to figure out is, wow, when, when you become God's child, when you've been adopted into His family, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. There's nothing you can do to make Him love you less. That is freedom right there. You see, you don't have to try to earn God's favor anymore. You've been set free. Well, how'd that happen? I was abiding in His Word. You'd be set free from the bondage of a condemning spirit. See, some of you, my goodness, you, all your life, you've heard voices and now the voices become your own. And the voice in your head just condemns you. You just condemn yourself continuously. All day long, whatever you face, whatever you're going through, you just beat yourself up in your head. You just, it's just a constant barrage of condemnation. Now, if somebody says to you, you know what you need to do? You can go pay somebody $80 an hour and sit down with them and say, here's the problem. I keep condemning myself. And you can explain all the nuances and technicalities of that. And they can lean back in the chair and say, well, here's what you need to do. Are you ready for this? Write this down. This is important. Stop doing that. (laughs) Well, sir, if I could stop doing that, ma'am, if I could stop doing that, I would have done that a long time ago. I can't stop doing it. That's why I'm here paying you 80 bucks an hour. Well, you start abiding in the Word. And then the Word's going to show you, wait a minute. You're, you're, not, you're not condemned anymore. You see, the only way to, to get that lie out of your head is you've got to replace it with the truth, don't you? You can't on your own just end the vicious cycle of condemnation Abiding in the Word opens you up to the reality that you were meant to live condemnation-free. Praise the Lord. What about debilitating fear and worry? Constantly agonizing about all the things you don't know that might happen, that could happen. You know what it's doing to you. You know how unhealthy it is and unproductive it is, but you can't stop. And you just live all the time under this weight of fear and worry and angst. Well, have you tried abiding in the Word? Have you tried that? Have you thought about Jesus' words to those who worry and fear? Have you just meditated on that for a while? Have you walked around with a little card in your pocket that had those verses on it? I'm going to tell you something that's going to set you free. It'll set you free. The only way that happens is when you abide in the Word. What about, what about your insecurities? What about your tentativeness? What about those of you who, who, who you're, you just can't seem to, 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 to make a decision? You can't seem to commit. You're always so, you're insecure and you're tentative. And so even, even when you feel good about something you ought to do, you just something at the last minute pulls you back. How are you going to resolve that? A lot of people take you $80 an hour. It's not going to help you. Abide in the Word. What about hopelessness? Helplessness? You feel like you're just at the mercy of everything around you. You know what the Bible says about you in Christ? Who you are? Who He is to you? What can, what can 
can all the things that can never change that, thwart that? You know what it says? What about all the people walking around? Bored. Honestly, just you, it, the only thing I can say is it's got to be boredom. I look around at the things that people get wound up about, and I just think, good gracious alive. You know what you need? You need purpose. Ma'am, sir, student, you need purpose. Purpose. If you knew your purpose, all these frivolous things wouldn't captivate your attention. Where are you going to find your purpose? Abiding in His Word. You're not going to find it on your own. Sin's wages, sin's authority, sin's power. Goodness. You, you can be scared of something for a long time. And then one day you realize it can't hurt you. All this time you believed that it was so ferocious and big and bad and scary. And then in an instant, you realize it's not at all what you thought it to be. If, if you're here this morning and your old nature always wins, you know you're not free because sin holds you captive. And when I say that, there's something you think about. Why don't you abide this week in, let's, let's say Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 6. Why don't you abide in those two chapters of Romans? Whatever that pit bull is, it's, you're so afraid of that you think is so ferocious and bad. Why don't you... Why don't you read what God says about, about that sin and about your authority over that sin and how you can handle that sin and defeat that sin. And See, when we're abiding in God's Word, we're going to find some things out. Okay? Here's what we're going to find out. That the Bible is the index of reality. It's the index of reality. Not a week goes by that somewhere in God's Word I don't have this aha moment and go, so that's how it works. See, you never get it all figured out. It's still just revealing itself constantly. Without the Scripture, you're going to be like these Numbskulls stand in front of Jesus going, Abraham's our father. We've never been in bondage. Huh? But, but I mean, they're not joking around. It's the index of reality. It shows us things as they really are. You see, it's going to teach you about you. 
A lot of you, in a few minutes when we're done here, you're going to go discuss all the things we just finished talking about. If you look on the back of that handout, you're going to see at the bottom a long list of things and scriptures there that I put. You know what those are? Those are just a starter, a primer. There's a primer of things you learn about from the Word that you're not going to come to in your own conclusions. None of those things you're going to go, oh yeah, I knew that. None of them. Zero. There's zero percent chance you figure that out on your own. No way. It's going to show you things as they really are. Maybe... Maybe at the end of all this conversation about freedom, it's every command is true. Every command is true. You see, that's the thing about the word is before I even start reading the first word, I already know that what I'm about to see is true. Every command is true and every promise, hallelujah, is true. So is it worth it? I don't know. You answer that question for you. I would say like Back in John chapter 6, to whom shall we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. It's the words. So Jesus came to bring us, to, to open up heaven, to allow us the opportunity to experience freedom, to, to know what it is to run free, to not live a life without boundaries, but to live our lives as we were created to live. That's what truth enables us to do. To find freedom. And the first step in finding that freedom is experiencing grace. It's coming to Jesus. Acknowledging your sin. With genuine repentance and experiencing the grace of God. And it ushers you into a relationship with Him. Unlike anything you could ever imagine. But I just want to remind you that the chapter that started with a group of people with stones in their hand ends with the same people picking up stones. And I guess the warning in this is all of these words that we've studied in this chapter have been levied towards people who are in the most dangerous position a person can be. And quite honestly... It would be naive for us to believe that some of us this morning aren't in that position. And I mean, in the entire world, the most dangerous position that you can possibly be in is to be halfway to Jesus. To have heard things he said and to say, I believe. And to stop there.
Jesus was talking to a group of people who just like so many today. With one hand, they're reaching towards him, but with the other hand, they're clinging to the comforts and the privileges of the world. They're people who begin even by saying they believe. They're even classified as believing. But if you keep reading the rest of the chapter, if you see where we're going next week, Jesus soon after says, you know, you're children of the devil. What? How do you, how do you start out believing in Him and by the end of a conversation, God in the flesh says you're Satan's children. They're slaves to sin. Rather than running to and experiencing the true freedom to live their life as God intended, they substituted that for thinking that freedom is I can just go in whatever direction I want to. No. Look at the animal kingdom. What happens when an animal goes where they shouldn't be? What prevents you from freedom? The wages of sin is death. It's death. Let's stand and bow our heads.